Amen. Yes. Amen. And the reason that's true, just really with the, the words of that third verse echoing through our minds, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It's perfect agreement with the words of David in Psalm 32 when he said this. I want you to listen closely to these words and contemplate what they mean, particularly to you as you stand here this morning. How blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. How blessed is the one to whom the Lord no longer imputes iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David confesses, he says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. He's talking about the weight of sin, the burden of guilt that we all carry apart from Jesus Christ. But then he says this, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I, know, I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, here's David's conclusion. Here's his invitation. Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Would you agree with me this morning that this is a time in which the Lord may be found? This is a time when we gather in his name to seek his face for all sorts of reasons, to give him our praise, to, to unburden our hearts, and even, even we often forget to confess our sin. I just want to give you just a moment before I pray of, of quietness in your heart to, to do the very thing that David instructs us there in view of the fact that either your sin has been forgiven and you've got every reason to rejoice, or in view of the fact that your sin needs to be forgiven and it's time to do business with the Lord. He says, let everyone, everyone means what? It means everyone, <laughs> right? Let everyone seek the Lord while he may be found, while it's still called today. So just take a moment and it's, Lord, thank you that you have forgiven my sin. Thank you that you have forgiven me the sin of maybe a particular one. And if there's a burden you need to confess, a sin you need to, to repent of, if this morning it's, Lord, I need to give you my life because I've never genuinely done that before, take these moments and simply pour out your heart to him. Seek him while he may be found. Lord, thank you. Bless you. This is our opportunity. Father, for some crazy reason, we understand from your scriptures, through your gospel, that the sound of your people praying is a delight to your ears. Father, we really don't understand that, for one, why you'd even bother listening to us at all as we were high-handed sinners against you. We've lived in rebellion toward you. Even after salvation, we, we choose our own path and we go our own way and you bring us back in and, and then you listen to our voice and you hear our complaint and and yet mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace is poured out and you give us your cleansing and your forgiveness and you remind us that, that even so it can be well with our soul because we're still your children. We still are your precious, holy possession. Father, it doesn't make any sense, but that's the essence of grace. Grace doesn't make sense. It is undeserved. And we're so grateful as we stand before you this morning to be on the receiving end of the grace that was poured out through Jesus' blood at the cross and the victory that was accomplished through his resurrection on the third day. Father, I thank you that we really can say we are most blessed among all men today because our sins have been forgiven, our transgressions washed away, our iniquity removed. We're clean in your sight.
Father, whatever is or is not else going well in our lives today, we can stand firm in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, I thank you that we've had an opportunity to hear of the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ already, Father. 35 young people, forever changed for eternity. And Father, while we pray for many more, we thank you for those you've brought to yourself. Father, who knows from among those 35 the difference that is going to be made for Jesus Christ in the world in the decades to come because one or two or all of those young men and women said yes to Jesus. Father, there's no telling what you can do with one life that has been surrendered to you. And Father, we pray that that would continue. We continue to seek you for revival in our neighborhood. Father, even in our own hearts, in our city, and in our nation. Father, that those 35 would be the first fruits of thousands and tens of thousands and millions more who would recognize that the only hope we have is in Jesus Christ. Father, it's the hope of Jesus Christ that we come to celebrate today, to worship at his feet to hear his word, your word preached, to respond to it in joy and faithful obedience. And so, Father, now as we turn to worship in the word, as we open our Bibles and see what they have to say, what you have to say to us in them, Father, I ask for your help. As we're going to travel some difficult ground today, and we travel only because it's where you've led us. We are here to follow the Son. We're not here to follow the preacher. So, Father, I pray for, for my part that you'd give me the the ability to speak clearly the truth of your word. And I pray you give my brothers and sisters, our family and friends here, Father, the ability to receive the preaching of your word. Father, we know that that it happens only through the power and the ministry of your Holy Spirit. So as always at this time, we invite, we even plead with him to guide us in truth, to guard us from error, to deliver us from apathy and distraction and indifference and open our eyes the eyes of our heart to help us see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus Christ clearly this morning in the preaching of your word. May we see Jesus Christ only this morning in the preaching of your word. And when we leave in a little while, Father, may it be rejoicing for though our circumstances may not have changed, Father, our hearts can be refreshed because we came and sat at the feet of the one who loved us enough to lay his life down for us and then take it up again in triumph and victory. Father, it's in his name we gather, and it's in his name we pray, as all of God's people said together with great joy and affirmation. Amen. 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 You may be seated. You may be seated. And as you're taking your seats, as always, let's let the boys and girls go for Children's Church. Regulars, guests, five-year-olds up to second graders, they can make their way out as they go spend some time in God's Word. And I want to invite you, as always, to open up God's Word and meet me, if you will, this morning in Mark chapter 13. I want you to open your Bible and meet me in Mark chapter 13. And, and I want to say, Mark, uh, Mark Moyer, that, that, that I'm, I'm going to be honest and say I was tempted when you uh, sort of semi-offered just to go take the microphone and preach this morning. I almost thought, yes, why don't you do that? Because of where we're going, some of you, many of you, I, I think we're here last Sunday as we return to our study in the Gospel of Mark after about a month away from it, a couple of months away from it, really. And we only, tra- we only studied four verses together last Sunday, and I told you there was plenty in those four verses to, to challenge all of our hearts. I think by the time we were done, you saw why that was true. Well, let me tell you this morning, you ain't seen nothing yet, okay? Because if you have not read ahead, what you're about to find is is one of the more treacherous, one of the more challenging, intimidating, and yet at the same time deeply rich and relevant passages in all of Mark's gospel. I'm going to talk more about that in a moment, but I want to start with the reading of Scripture. We're going to read it through once, and then as always, we're going to walk back through it together. And we're going to need both of those trips, I think, to even begin to lay hold of what it is that the Lord has to say to us 
in this passage. So as I said, we're in Mark chapter 13 this morning. We finally finished chapter 12. We are into chapter 13. It is, of course, still Holy Week. Jesus, as we saw last Sunday in our study of God's Word, we saw that Jesus did his last bit of public ministry prior to his betrayal, the last sort of event that happened in the company of others. Now it's him and the disciples. Now they're going sort of not underground necessarily, but they're stepping away from the crowds and the people, the fans, the opposition, and it's Jesus doing business here with his disciples. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to go down through verse 23, where if you'll follow along in your Bible, this is what the Word of God says. It says, as he, Jesus, was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, there's a brief gap of time here, but now he's sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. These things must take place. It's not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the, all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it's not you who speak, it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, a father is child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house, and the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or behold, he's over there, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead you astray, astray, if possible, even the elect." But take heed. Behold, I've told you everything in advance. You know, at the start of this series of studies in Mark's gospel, which I'll grant you was a long time ago, so I don't necessarily expect anyone to remember this, but when we began our study in Mark's gospel, I told you at that time that one of the hallmarks of Mark's gospel is that it is a gospel of action. 
Compared to the other three Gospels, it's a Gospel of action. That is to say that Mark, in telling the story of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, spends a lot of time telling us about the miracles Jesus performed. Only a handful of times does he relate to us any of Jesus' parables. And it's even less frequent, it's not very often in the Gospel at all, that he gives us any of the text of Jesus' actual sermons. The gospel of Mark is much more a gospel of doing than it is a gospel of speaking. It's a lot of action. But as we've just seen, if you were paying attention as we walk through these 23 verses together, when Mark finally does get around to giving us one of Jesus' sermons, he does not mess around with what he relates to us, and with the message that he wants to give us. Because this sermon, one that actually we didn't even look at in its entirety, we're going to look at the final portion of it next Sunday because there's just too much going on here to cover at once. But this sermon, which is often referred to as his Olivet Discourse, because as we were told, he delivered it to the disciples at a location called the Mount of Olives, this message that Jesus gave is widely considered, as one author puts it, quote, by far the most difficult passage in all of Mark's gospel, and one of the most difficult texts in the entire New Testament. Now, as I've studied this text, I've discovered that to be true, and I found it to be true for all sorts of reasons. But for my purposes, for our purposes here this morning, I can really boil it down to two fundamental reasons why I agree wholeheartedly, and by the time you're, we're done, you will too, that this is one of the most difficult passages of the entire New Testament. The first reason is as follows. Number one, much of it's just plain hard to understand. Anybody get that sense as I read through it? Absolutely. Number one, much of it is very, very difficult to, to understand. The second reason I believe it's one of the most difficult texts in the whole New Testament is much of what I do understand, I wish Jesus had not said. Because it's scary. And it's intimidating. And it's a daunting, daunting message. And I say so simply to, to affirm and and to say not just to you, but with you, that it is with a good measure of trepidation and a whole lot of humility that we're going to dig into this text this morning. That we're going to go into Jesus' Olivet Discourse. And what we're going to do as we walk through it together is really seek to understand, or the way I want to present it to us for our consideration this morning, is that really what this is, is this is a message in which Jesus is calling us, calling me, calling you, to know our stuff when it comes to discerning the signs of the times in which we're living and how we as followers of the Son can live wisely and well whatever the times may be we are living in. It's a call to know our stuff and then apply it to our lives. And in order to sort of show you what I mean by that, there are several things I want you to see. And because simply because this is one of the most difficult texts that you'll come across that we'll encounter in the New Testament, this is perhaps going to be a less linear sermon than, I'm typically, uh, than I typically give you from just one point to another to another because there's just a lot of ground to cover. But, but at the end of the day, at the end of our time together, I really want to touch on four things that hopefully will help us understand better what's going on here. Starting with this, number one, the first thing I want to draw our attention to in this passage in order to understand it well is that the whole scene, the whole message, this Olivet Discourse that Jesus gave was prompted, was sparked by what I would call a burning question. In verses one through four, the disciples present Jesus with a burning, and I believe a still, even today, burning question. 
Now, if you've been following along in these studies of Mark's gospel and have perhaps, hopefully, read the story of Jesus and the other gospels as well, you, you probably know what I mean, even agree with me when I say to you that Jesus, as he went around doing life and ministry here on planet Earth, wasn't typically the kind of guy who just went around raining on other people's parades, sort of being Danny Downer to everybody, always looking on sort of the dark side of things, the clouds in the sky. And that just wasn't the way that Jesus typically related to and interacted with other people. But it kind of sounds that way here. It kind of sounds like that way here in the first couple of verses when if you look at your Bible again, beginning in verse 1, this is how the story begins. It says, he, Jesus, is going out of the temple. He's with just his 12 disciples. And one of them, we don't know who, says to him, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, before we go any further, let me simply say that what that disciple said was absolutely true when he commented on the beauty and the splendor of the Jerusalem temple. Because the temple, the Jerusalem temple, the te there were several temples down through the Old Testament and, and on into the New Testament his, history of Israel. This place was magnificent. This place was incredible. In fact, it was one of the architectural wonders of the ancient world. He specifically, if you look at verse 1, this disciple commented on the wonderful stones. And the reason he said that is because as the archaeologists have unearthed this temple which was built by King Herod and his successors, took almost 50 years to build. The primary stones upon which it was built and that held it together were roughly the size of railroad boxcars. This is a big, big deal. So he's impressed by that. The complex itself, as Herod built it out into the city of Jerusalem, covered roughly one-sixth the entire city of Jerusalem by the time it was complete. And when he comments on the splendor and the beauty the wonderful buildings, perhaps what this disciple was referring to were the, the gates scattered around the wall that, that surrounded the temple complex, which were literally coated in bronze and silver and gold. This place was incredible. It was incredible. And so I, I simply bring that up to say anybody would have said what this disciple said here, even if they'd been there a dozen times before. It would have been, you've had that experience too. You've gone places. You've seen amazing uh, works of creation, amazing uh, construction uh, feats and buildings and, and monuments. You say, wow, it's just a really big deal. And so the disciples, just, he just pointed it out. Jesus, what a cool place. What a beautiful building. And yet Jesus' reply to that wasn't just shocking, it was unthinkable. This is where I say, sort of sounds like he's raining on their parade, because what did he say in verse 2? <laughs> says, Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone is going to be left upon another. They'll all be torn down. Now he has their undivided attention. Now all 12 are locked in, which was exactly what he was seeking to do. So that therefore, in verses 3 and 4, they leave the temple, they go down through the valley, up the other side of the Mount of Olives, probably where they're sitting, they can look down or across to the temple and see it in all of its beauty and magnificence. And it's Peter and James and John and Andrew, verse 3, and they're questioning, and here's their question for Jesus, tell us. Jesus, you really got our attention back there, tell us. When are these things going to happen? And how are we going to see it coming? Because what you've just said is unthinkable. But we know that you mean what you say, and what you say is true. When will these things be, and what will be the sign of them being fulfilled? And so what Jesus does, beginning in verse 5 through the rest of the chapter, is just respond to that question. And we're going to look at his answer, but before we do, I think we need to take a couple of minutes just looking at a second thing, and then we'll get to the heart of the message itself. We need to see it begins with this simple burning question, but... 
Simple, simple observation turns into a burning question. When is this going to happen? When is the unthinkable going to come upon us? Before we get to Jesus' answer, a second thing we need to see is we need to get a little bit of prophetic perspective. I just want to offer you for a couple of moments, the second thing I want you to see in this passage, a little bit of prophetic perspective. And again, another reason why this message Jesus gave was so complicated. So the second thing I want you to see or to talk about is just we, we need some, some perspective on the, the prophetic nature of what Jesus was saying here. And, and as I go into it, let me simply note that what I'm about to say, I recognize, warrants an entire sermon of its own. What we're going to talk about for the next four or five minutes really could be spent 40 or 50 minutes unpacking it. And, and, and as such, I simply point that out probably primarily to say what I'm going to do in the next four or five minutes is destined to disappoint some of you. Because I'm going to expose several very compelling side rows, and we're not going to travel them, okay? Maybe some other time we'll get back to them, but there's not time to do it all. Instead, what I want to point out is, is, is part of really probably the essence of what makes this particular passage so complex and so challenging is that throughout it, as Jesus speaks, there are multiple layers of prophetic insight, multiple levels of prophetic pronouncement, declaration being made all throughout the text. In other words, as Jesus speaks, he's got several things in mind here that weren't all necessarily clear in that moment. And a prime example, there are several places we could go. Probably the best is verse 14. So look at that quickly with me in your Bible. Because in verse 14, here's what Jesus said as he's unfurling the signs that will indicate that the end of the world is at hand. He says this, but when you see I realize we're parachuting in here, and we're going to pull right back out, but let's look at it. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, then Mark adds this note, let the reader understand. In other words, pay attention, we're doing a deep dive here. So when you see that, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and a whole bunch of other things like that should happen as well. What we need to see in that statement is that when Jesus use those words. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, he had several things. In fact, three distinct things in mind. The first one was this. The first thing he had in mind was a past event, uh, an already accomplished event in Israel's history that was mentioned, first of all, was prophesied in Daniel 11 and fulfilled in the year 167 BC, when a dastardly villain by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes brought his army to Jerusalem and, and invaded and ransacked and leveled the city, and his culminating act of desecration as he got into the temple, tore it apart, and then he sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar of God. It was an abomination that brought spiritual desolation. And so when Jesus uses those words here, when you see the abomination of desolation set up in the temple where it should not be, the disciples, because they knew their history, all immediately went to that event. It was just a couple of hundred years before their time. And they go, oh, we know what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about one of the worst things that's ever happened to our people. One of the most devastating days in all of our history. But what's he doing? He's using that past event to say something like it is on its way. There's a second thing Jesus had in mind. It's a near-term fulfillment for them that, in fact, was fulfilled, we know from history, about 40 years later. Jesus says these words in about 30 A.D. Well, in 70 A.D., it happened again. This time, the Romans invaded Jerusalem. It started around 66 A.D. It took several years, but it culminated in 70 A.D. A Roman general by the name of Titus 
brought the mighty Roman armies to Jerusalem, once again destroyed the city, ransacked the temple, and literally on that, on that occasion, 40 years in, still in the lifetime of some of these disciples, they would have been around and know what was happening, literally fulfilled Jesus' words in verse 2, not one stone was left upon another. The unthinkable happened. Jesus said, what happened once before, it's going to happen again. But what we know on the basis of the counsel of the whole New Testament, as well as some of the old, the books of Daniel and Revelation and 1 Thessalonians and others, is Jesus had a third fulfillment in mind here as well, something that's still yet to come, that hasn't happened yet, something far more devastating still. We believe, if we understand correctly, that in making this single statement, Jesus was also referring to history's ultimate last days when tribulation will overtake the whole world, one that we now refer to as the Antichrist will rise, and he will compel and command everyone to worship him. It says he'll set himself up in Jerusalem as the object of worship. He'll call himself Messiah and insist upon allegiance. See what I'm saying? Multiple layers of prophetic fulfillment. There's just a lot going on here that Jesus is talking about. And because that's so, here's where I'm going with this. Because that's so, because there are multiple layers of prophecy in Jesus' message, here's a safe assumption we can all make, that the disciples were just as confused as you now are, confused, and as I am as well, about all that he is referring to. But here's the thing. Here's really where we're headed with the rest of this message. And what I want to make clear, I'm going to say again and again until we're finished this morning, Despite the fact that you're now thoroughly confused, and that may not be the text, that just may be my fault, but the, but the fact that you're confused right now, or at least mystified, what we need to understand is that when Jesus gave this message, he did not, everybody say he did not, he did not give this message to us to confuse us, nor did he give this message to us in order to frighten us, even though he says some rather scary things. And what we need to understand as we look at these words of Jesus, to whatever degree we do or do not yet understand them. He did not give them to confuse us. He did not give them to us to frighten us. No, Jesus gave this message first to his disciples and then to us so that we would be, key word, prepared. Everybody say prepared. So we'd be prepared to live wisely and well as followers of the Son, whatever generation we may be living in. He gave us these words so we live well for him. Whatever the times we're living in might be like. And that is why, in the rest of our time together, we're going to zero in on basically two things that Jesus emphasizes in the message itself. All of that's set up for where we're going for the rest of our time. Because there's two major emphases that I think we need to, to zero in on if we're going to get out of this. What Jesus intends, as I said, that we'd live wisely and well for him in any generation so the next thing I want you to see is this. Here's where we're going to get into the message itself. As we look at the times in which we're living, as any follower of Jesus looks at the times in which they are living, here's part of what Jesus was saying. It's the third thing as you work your way through your notes, and it is this. Jesus makes it very, very clear that the end will not come before several very specific things happen. Jesus said the end is going to come, Okay. The unthinkable is, in fact, going to happen. History's headed somewhere. There's a culmination. There's a climax. There's an end to the story. But it will not come until several very specific things happen. And before I share them, I want to clear up one misconception. And then we're going to talk about them. We're just going to move through them pretty quickly. But it is this. 
And I want you to look with me at verses 5 through 8 real quickly. Because in verses 5 through 8, Jesus, here's the way he begins the message. He says, see to it that no one misleads you. All right, he's already got us on our guard, being prepared. He says this, he says, many are going to come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm Christ, and they'll mislead many. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but don't be frightened. These things must take place. That's not yet the end. Nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And and these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, here's the misconception I'd like to try to clear up. Because I cannot tell you how many times in my life as a follower of Jesus, I've heard this particular section of Scripture referenced as signs that we're living in the last days. Good, well-meaning students of Scripture say, man, I'm hearing wars and rumors of wars. You heard about that earthquake? We are in the last days. The end is near. And, and with all seriousness, looking at that and, and, and drawing that conclusion. But can I say to you this morning, that is categorically not what Jesus said here. Categorically not what Jesus said here. Look again at verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be frightened. These things must take place. That is what? Not yet the end. He says it again in verse 8, in case you miss it, in verse 7. He says there's, there's going to be nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes and famines in various places. These things are not the end. They're merely the very beginning of birth pangs. He likens it to the, to the labor and delivery process. And you know, those birth pangs can begin very, very early. It can be a very, very, very long time before the baby actually arrives, right? It's just the beginning of a very long process. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. In, Though such things are terrible, wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, no, make no mistake, terrible things. He is saying, that's just, that's just life in a fallen world. This is life in a fallen world. Bad things happen. As believers, we have an opportunity to minister in them. Because don't be surprised, don't be frightened, and don't go drawing conclusions that this is the end. And what Jesus is really cautioning us against, and I'm going to get off this soapbox in just a second, but he's, he's cautioning us against drawing foolish and ignorant speculation and conclusions because of the latest story we just saw in the news, that somehow this is the sign of the end. I was thinking about this. I was vividly reminded of how when I was in high school as a teenager, Remember, uh, there was a story, a book came out. I didn't read the book, but I heard a lot about it. I checked on Amazon this week. It sold four and a half million copies. It was a book titled 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. I lived through 1988. Pretty sure he didn't show up. And so you know what the author of this book did after selling four and a half million copies of that book and he didn't show up? He wrote 89 Reasons Jesus Will Return in 1989. And he got it published. And he did it again in 93. And he did it again in 94. And can I just say, that stuff drives me crazy. Because it makes the name and the reputation of Christ and his church look ridiculous. We're worried about times and charts and and this and that. and, And what does Jesus say here? He says, stop it. Stop projecting the end and start living in the times you are. For me. Because this is just life in a fallen world. And also because in the next several verses, and I promise I'm going to do this very, very quickly, Jesus says the end will not come. He very clearly says the end will not come until the world experiences several very specific things. You ready? Here we go. I got five of them. Beginning in verse 9, number 1, widespread persecution. Widespread persecution, verse 9. Be on your guard. 
They will deliver you to the courts. You will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them, which, by the way, all 11 faithful disciples experienced. All 11 of them experienced some degree of this. They all, in some way or another, lost their life for the faith. And millions more believers have since. But what Jesus, and and as we take the full scope of the New Testament, and he's saying the, the breadth of this, the depth of this, will be magnified so much more greatly when the end really is coming. Widespread persecution. Number two, worldwide proclamation. It says it will also be accompanied with worldwide proclamation. Verse 10, this is a great verse. The gospel must, the word literally means of divine necessity, by the will of God, it must be preached to all the nations. Somehow the end will not come, Christ will not return until the news of his gospel somehow touches every tribe and tongue and nation. Widespread persecution, worldwide proclamation, third, unprecedented conflict. Unprecedented conflict. Look at verses 12 and 13. Brother will betray brother to death. A father is child, children their parents, have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all. Because of my name. Now, the gospel's always divided families and homes. The gospel's always been a source of offense. But what Jesus is saying is the end's not going to come until that's the norm. That's just the way it is. The scale surpasses anything that's come before of relational conflict, specifically because, not because of politics, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Fourth, he says, catastrophic apostasy. Apostasy means falling away, spiritual corruption. He says there will be, and we looked at this verse a little bit already. The end won't come until, it says you'll see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be. And that's when Jesus says in the next several verses, things get pretty serious. And, and again, when we put the, the prophetic messages of scripture together we realize that what he's talking about is at least we believe if we understand this correctly that some sort of leader will arise who will demand he'll say no to christ absolute allegiance to me not just i'm in charge but i am god and make up your mind catastrophic apostasy and then finally fifthly jesus says the end won't come until the world experiences unparalleled tribulation verse 19 those will be a time those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Jesus says, guys, something a whole lot worse than 167 B.C. is going to come. Something a whole lot worse than 70 A.D. is going to come. Something a whole lot worse than our two world wars is going to come. Now, you really wish Mark preached today, didn't you? (laughs) Not easy stuff. It's not easy stuff. And and among the many things we can take out of that, at a bare minimum, is therefore we must be cautious as believers in the conclusions that we draw and the proclamations we make about the end of the world as we know it, about being speculative and saying this is what it means and that is what it means, because that's not Jesus' point here. That's not what Jesus is after here. Because again, let me repeat it in case you missed it the first time. Despite everything I've just told you, all right? This is unsettling, right? Despite everything I've told you, let me say it again. Jesus did not give us this message to scare us. Jesus, listen to me, gave us this message to prepare us. To prepare us 
to live, as I said a moment ago, wisely and well, whatever generation or times in which we are living. Live for him. See, sometimes you get so caught up on, is it the end, and when is the end, and and that you lose sight of, I've got a responsibility right here and now as a follower of Jesus. I'm I'm so fixated on where it's going and how how scary it is that I forget that. No, my job is to be a, a witness for him right now. Jesus didn't give us this message to scare us, despite everything I just told you. Jesus gave us this message to prepare us. And that's why in the final few minutes, what I want you to see in this passage, and if all the rest uh, that I've said doesn't make sense to you, very good chance that that's possible. If, if the rest of it is confusing to you, that, that may be the case. I think this much we can all not only latch on to, but agree upon. That really what Jesus is driving at for his disciples and for us in this message is there are some things, this is the fourth and final thing, that we must all be devoted to. The end will not come until these certain things come to pass. But in the meantime, you and I as believers are to be devoted to certain things. And in acknowledging the the great complexity of everything we've covered so far, I'm not just going to give you three things Jesus says we must be devoted to. I've whittled it down to three words, okay? So if you get nothing else out of today's message, I want you to remember these three words. Jesus says, whatever the times may be in which you're living, whatever opposition you may be up against or ease you may be enjoying, if you are a follower of the Son, in this message he says, devote yourself to three things. Here we go. Number one, the first word, watch. Everybody say watch. Jesus says we are to watch. And this is actually the one that he mentions most frequently in the text. Because while it's translated several ways, we would not have seen it just reading this in English. There is a a single Greek term that's repeated multiple times in the message. It begins in verse 5. Follow me really quickly in your Bible, verse 5. Jesus began saying to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Now that see to it, that's one Greek word. The Greek term is blepete. It means watch or watch out. He says, see to it that no one misleads you. He does it again in verse 9. My Bible renders it, be on your guard. It's the same Greek word, blepete, watch, pay attention, watch out. He does it again in verse 23. Again, the Bible, my Bible, English translates it differently again. Take heed. Behold, I've told you everything in advance. Same Greek word, blepete, watch, watch out. He actually uses it again in the portion of the message we're going to look at next Sunday as well. Over and over and over again, Jesus says, watch, watch, watch. Now, by watch, Jesus does not mean simply observe. Not like you watch TV. (laughs) Not like you watch a movie. Not like you watch people walk by on the sidewalk or at the airport with no involvement or engagement. It means more than merely observe what's going on in the world around you. Because while lots of us, many of us here today, and I like to think I'm in this group, are are well-versed in the current events, the things going on in our world, and, and we try to pay attention to, to cultural trends and, and religious activity and all the rest. The fact of the matter is a lot of us here this morning are watching what's going on in the world. We're watching the news, current events, politics, pro- all of this stuff we're trying to figure out. But here's how we know when we've missed Jesus point, when we're watching in the wrong way. We have totally missed Jesus point if as we watch what we see leads us to fret if it leads us to worry, 
if it leads us to a sky is falling mentality with everyone we interact with and everywhere we go. Because again, let me say it once more, that is precisely not what Jesus said to do here. He didn't say watch and freak out. He didn't say watch and tell everybody how terrible things are. No, read your Bible. Look at what he says. He says, watch, verse 9, or verse 5, so that we are not deceived. See to it that no one misleads you. Verse 9, he says, watch so that we are not overwhelmed. Be on your guard. Some bad things may happen, but it's all part of the plan. He says, watch so that that you're not, verse 23, spun in all sorts of directions, inside and out, by every breaking news bulletin you hear, that you think, oh, this is it. We finally, we finally reached disaster. That's not what watch means. Watch means pay attention, draw conclusions, and listen to the Lord, and be not afraid. And that's why the second word I want you to see here, the second word of counsel Jesus gives us, that if you're a follower of the Son, you must be devoted to, I must be, whatever times in which we're living is this. Number one, watch. Number two, trust. Say trust. trust. Say it like you mean it. Trust. trust. Jesus says trust. Trust what? That the Lord is in control. That the Lord is in control. Look again at verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, freak out! No. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be frightened. Don't be afraid. Verse 11. When they, here, how about this? When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you're going to say. Don't be frightened. Don't worry. Why? Well, because for one thing, it won't last forever. For another thing, Jesus has promised to deliver, but most of all, the reason we should not be afraid is because of the one who gave us this message. Amen? Look at verse 5. Who said these words? It wasn't Peter. It wasn't Paul. It wasn't James. It wasn't John. It was who? Jesus. He says, this is all going to come. Do not be frightened. Don't worry. Don't freak out. Don't be afraid. Trust. Why? Because the just shall live by what? By faith. By faith. Number one, watch. Number two, trust. Number three, this may actually be the most difficult of the three. Speak. Everybody say, speak. Speak. Look with me again at what I think is the most hopeful, in, in, in a roundabout way, perhaps the most hopeful practical portion of this whole message, verses 10 and 11. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to speak, but speak whatever is given to you in that hour, for it really isn't you who speak at all. It is the Holy Spirit who lives within you. Speak. Listen, I understand. I understand that a silent witness for Christ can be an effective one, okay? I understand. Silent, the way we live our life can be effective. Do you know what I also believe with all my heart? I believe that a verbal witness is a whole lot more effective at leading people to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to step briefly onto my soapbox real quickly once again and say, well, I get the gist of, because we can all, we've all heard it, we can all quote it, the famous words of St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Can I remind you that's not in the Bible? It's not in the Bible. 
That's not something Jesus said. That's one man's take on the situation. I also believe that that's become a crutch for many of us. Say, I really don't have to be an evangelist. I'm just going to live a good life. And if I don't lie and cheat at work and yell at my wife and, you know, abuse my kids, well, people will see that. And then they'll come to church and they'll walk down the aisle and fall down and receive Jesus. Why? Because I'm a nice guy. No, they won't. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. And at some point, I, (laughs) you, we must speak. The gospel must be preached to all the nations. And listen, if according to verse 11, the Spirit can help us speak the gospel in the most extreme imaginable situation, being hauled before the court, being on trial for your life because of the name of Jesus, uh, would you agree with me when I say that if the Spirit can help us, then he can help us at work, at school, at the coffee shop, across the dinner table to speak of Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel? With all my heart, I believe that's what Jesus wants us to do most of all, whatever the times may be in which we're living. Speak. Watch. Trust. Speak. You know, history shows us that every generation of Christians, including the early church, thought they were in the last, there were people who thought we're in the last days. This is it. The end is near it's all, I mean, these disciples, they thought it was going to come in their lifetime, at least at certain points they did. And, and frankly, there's a sense in which you'd say, well, who wouldn't feel that way? If one morning in ancient Israel or that part of the world, you woke up, looked over the hill, and saw the advancing armies of Rome, their gold shields and their red banners coming for one reason, to wipe you out, who wouldn't think the end of the world's at hand? Who wouldn't think the end of the world's at hand if you were living in a ghetto in Warsaw in 1939? The Nazis were coming, not just for the Jews, but for the Christians as well, for anyone who was not in allegiance. Who who wouldn't think the end of the world? It must be here. Who wouldn't think the end of the world's at hand if you lived in a continent, as millions do today, racked by war and famine and disease and no hope? I mean, it's it's not unnatural. It's not unreasonable to think that it's the end of the world. And Christians of every generation have always thought that. And while it's chronologically correct, of course, to say we are closer to the end, that's just a fact of of space and time than, than prior generations, it is equally correct to say we don't really know. The end of the world, it may be around the corner. It may also be generations away. We're going to see next week, Jesus says, even I don't know, the Father knows. When he tells me to go, I'm on it, but he hasn't told me when that's going to be. Jesus said, I don't know. It's up to the Father. And and once more, that's not the point. The point, Jesus' primary point, we'll end with this. In this Olivet Discourse, he says, if you're my people, I want you to pay attention to the times, but I want you to look above and beyond the times to the author of time, to the author of salvation. I want you to fix your eyes on Christ and follow him, whatever the times are like in which you are living. Because the big idea of today's message is this, the more we look to Christ, the less rattled we're going to be. Whatever we may be facing or going through, the more you look to Jesus, the more frequently and deeply and earnestly you look to Jesus, the less rattled, the less fearful, the less overwhelmed you're going to be. So be on your guard, but don't be afraid. Jesus 
is Lord of all. Father, I pray that you would take, Lord, the words of this very challenging and sobering portion of Scripture. Father, that certainly could be presented perhaps in a clearer way, but but nonetheless, we're, we're looking for your truth, and as we encounter it, it does challenge us deeply. Father, for some of us, as a result of it, we, we need to, to repent and confess our fear. Father, our, our despair over the, the world that we live in. Not that there are things over which we shouldn't grieve, but, but to be paralyzed by it, Father, is not what Jesus called us to do. Some of us may need to, to grapple with a, a lack of trust in you to work all things out for your glory and our good. Father, all of us, chiefly me, need to learn and take seriously what it means to speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost men and women and children around us. Father, would you take the things of truth that have been spoken here today and seal them up in our hearts and then move them to our hands and feet and our lips and take all the rest and let it slip away so that we leave truly looking to Jesus alone in whose name we pray. Amen.